Think about how many series or feature films you've watched that featured a person with a disability, or how many of your co-workers in media, television, or film fall into that category. It's likely a very low number, and part of the problem is right now, no one in Canada is really keeping track of that data. With all the discussion about increasing the representation of marginalized communities over the past few years, AMI wondered why the disability community wasn't being included in that conversation. It recently announced the launch of the Disability Screen Office in conjunction with the Canada Media Fund and Telefilm. Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, spoke to Andrew Morris, AMI-TV's Manager of Independent Production, about both amplifying creative voices from within the disability community and eliminating accessibility barriers for those who want to work in the screen industries. I'm Andrew Morris, and I'm the Manager of Independent Production at uh, Accessible Media for AMI-TV. How I got into this industry is, uh, I guess, is kind of an interesting story. Um, I started in uh, music uh, many years ago, was producing and engineering and had a recording studio, and then went off on my own and started a venture in live theater production. I actually developed some technology that made lighting and audio systems follow actors on stage in real time. And I guess at a certain point when I wound that business up, I, I uh, had this ability to pretty much choose whatever path I wanted to next. And I guess it was uh, around 2008, 2009. And I thought, you know, I, I've always wanted to do some something in television and film, but I guess I, maybe when I was younger, I didn't have the courage or didn't have the education or whatever it was. I did a lot of things on the periphery of television and film, like music for television or maybe some audio post-production for television. I, I actually spent a lot of time doing audio posts for television, but I never was actually making television. So I thought, I'm not really sure the best way to go about this. I, I, I could either go to school, then I was in my late 30s, early 40s, and I could go to school and start over and take me four years and then work my way up after that. And and then I thought, or I could volunteer or intern or just get my foot in the door at a company and, and work my way up from there. And one of my friends uh, told me about this uh, posting that they saw at at the time, it wasn't accessible media. It was a company called Voiceprint that made described video for television and film. And it involved uh, some writing and some audio, uh, some producing. And I thought, well, I've done all that stuff. And, you know, it's kind of close to television. I think maybe I'll give that a shot. And, and so I did. And I learned all about described video and how it worked. Interestingly, back in uh, the 90s, when I um, actually worked at a music store in the very early 90s, quite a number of uh, blind customers used to come to me, and I ended up creating some like Braille kits that would help them navigate the uh, electronic synthesizers back then. So I ended up being known as the guy who helped blind people with their musical instruments. So it was interesting to sort of have that full circle moment come back to me doing described video, which is you know, of course, a service for people who are blind and partially sighted. And I guess as uh, time went on at uh, VoicePrint, they had also launched, or the parent company, the National Broadcast Reading Service, had launched a television channel as well called the Accessible Channel, or TAC-TV at the time. 
And eventually all these companies uh, rolled into, uh, were rebranded as accessible media and the television and the described video and the broadcaster, it all came out of the same building. As we were going forward in uh, doing DV for productions and we were doing our own um, original productions at the time, I kind of thought, you know, it doesn't really make sense that we are making our own original productions and we package them up and then we ship them over to the other side of the building and they put the described video on it. And what that ends up creating is a, a separate version of the show that some people can watch. So, you know, if you're blind or partially sighted and you want the TV show to be accessible, you turn the described video on. But then the show isn't as enjoyable for your sighted counterparts who are sitting on the couch next to you. So maybe there's a way that we could just create one version that's got the accessibility built into it right from the very beginning. And back then, that was, I guess, about maybe 10 years ago, this concept called integrated described video was, was born. And around that time as well, uh, I had started the independent production department. And we started pretty much making all of our shows with integrated described video and training independent production companies across the country how to do it. I think we really felt the payoff very recently when uh, our show, uh, Employable Me, won the Canadian Screen Award for the Best Factual Series. Because people who watch that show and the people who adjudicate and vote don't really know that the show is made with integrated described video. They just recognize it as a great show and you know ended up voting for that, which is how it won Best Factual Series. What makes it so meaningful for us is that people don't really realize that they were watching a fully accessible version of a, of a TV show without having to turn on any described video. So whether you're blind, partially sighted or fully sighted, you got the full version of what ended up being an award-winning show. So uh, that was a special moment for us. Anyway, fast forward to today, uh, we had uh, been having some conversations with Canada Media Fund and Telefilm, and, you know, some questions came up about there were a lot of incentives for underrepresented communities that uh, started to come into play in uh, 2020, 2021. And we really just asked the question of why the definition of diversity and diverse communities didn't include people with disabilities to be aligned with the definition that the federal government had. The funders, specifically CMF, who we spoke to in the first place, were very cooperative and interested in making this a reality and creating more of an equitable playing field for all of the underrepresented communities, not just the racially marginalized communities. And from there, we, we partnered up and uh, started to build a couple of programs. Ultimately, as we we were consulting with the community, and the community being you know, people with disabilities who are working in the film and television industry across the country. We discovered that there are a lot of barriers that really prevent people with disabilities from benefiting from the screen-based sector and, and working in it and contributing to it. And those barriers went quite far beyond anything that like one or two programs could solve or that even any funding can solve. And so really all the roads led to the creation of a, a disability screen office, uh, which is pretty much where we are today. Uh, and, you know, that screen office would have services that included, you know, training and education and consultation services and resource libraries and business affairs and advocacy and funding. I mean, its mandate has the potential to have a, a very wide range of programs that are meant to 
fulfill this idea that the industry could be accessible to everyone and have uh, appropriate and positive representation of people with disabilities. There's no disability advocacy organization in the broadcast system right now. So that's why AMI is spearheading this, uh, this project. Right. I, I want you to know, first of all, Andrew, that I have consumed many episodes of Columbo in integrated <laughs> described video on AMI. But uh, for people who don't know what AMI is, do you maybe want to talk a little bit about some of the programming? Because you actually work on Employable Me. Uh, yeah. So I'll just clarify one thing. So the, the version of Columbo that you saw didn't have integrated described video, had described video in an open format. And what that means is that every program on AMI, whether it has integrated described video or described video, means that it's available right when you turn the channel on. You don't have to adjust anything on your TV. You don't have to fiddle with your remote. As soon as you turn on AMI, you are getting the accessible version of that show. So now Columbo had described video, which is an, a, a narrator that's telling someone who's blind or partially sighted. Uh, what's happening on the screen in case they can't see the screen. And usually that narration comes up in between the dialogue. And it turns out that that described video track, let's call it, is valuable to a lot of people. You, you don't have to be blind or partially sighted to enjoy it. Uh, it turns out that people that are learning English as a second language uh, also find the described video very helpful uh, in terms of navigating what they're watching on screen. So AMI is, you know, we're a uh, not-for-profit uh, media organization that primarily makes entertainment accessible for people who are blind and partially sighted. It's also an organization that makes space for people with disabilities uh, in the media. It operates uh, three primary services that are CRTC licensed. So one is uh, AMI-TV, which is the English television channel. And its counterpart, uh, Ami Tele, which is the French television channel, and then AMI Audio as well, which is also a CRTC licensed station. It's, it's like a radio station, but it's broadcast over the TV. And then the company also has uh, an app that contains uh, a lot of our digital content. We also have a podcast division and a website that uh, houses all of our original content as well. So that's the company in a nutshell. In terms of our programming, the original programs generally are geared towards, you know, the disability community. They are intended to, like I mentioned, make space for people with disabilities in the broadcast system. We have a lot of shows that are created by people with disabilities that are written or produced or directed by. In some cases, they are the host and right in front of the camera. Uh, in some cases, they're behind the camera. So it really is the content um, I don't want to call it the destination for people with disabilities because that, you know, it, it, all the content across the broadcast system should be the destination for everybody. But specifically, people with disabilities that have an interest in telling their own story, AMI is, is very interested in portraying those stories as authentically as possible. I want to go back to the starting point of AMI's exploration of forming a disability screen office. How do you think that persons with disabilities kind of fell off the radar from that larger definition of, you know, what is a diverse person? I don't think it was ever an intentional thing where a group fell off the radar. I think what happened was, you know, in the wake of 
the tragedy surrounding George Floyd, and there were a, a number of social justice issues that came forth after that. And there was a real increased awareness in Canada and the United States about marginalized communities, like specifically racialized communities. It really started with uh, the representation of Black people on television, and it uh, started to migrate out to people of color and uh, Indigenous communities here in Canada also were considered part of the underrepresented uh, marginalized communities. And, and I think really that's where it started, and it was all with, with great intent, and that intent being to have more and better and more appropriate uh, representation in the media, because that's that's where we get a lot of our understanding of uh, what's happening in society. It's the media really reflects who we are, and when we don't see ourselves reflected in the media, we tend to grow up thinking of ourselves as the other, or you know, just not part of the mainstream. So I, I, I think that it, it really just organically grew into that, but we did note that many of these incentives that were intended to help the underrepresented communities were missing some of the other underrepresented communities like LGBTQ plus and people with disabilities. So that's where we sort of stepped in and said, okay, it's great that we have these incentives, but now let's make sure that all of the underrepresented communities are involved in this definition of diversity. You referred earlier to leading, you know, the series of roundtables over the last year with both the creative screen community and academia to build a picture of representation on and off screen. Do you want to talk about some of the things that you heard? I don't even really know where to start. There was so much that we heard. <laughs> um, I, first of all, just to, to uh, clarify how that came up. I mean, it, it wasn't specifically an idea that AMI had that we, we're going to open this office and and we need to talk to people about it. I mean, it really what happened is when we were in our conversations with CMF about enhancing their definition of diversity, they really had an interest in partnering with us and understanding what the community needed. And, and really it was from those conversations that that we went back to the community and asked, uh, what are the what are the main barriers that are you know making it challenging for you to uh, work in the screen industry or be or participate or be in the screen industry? And that's really how that all started. So we had a number of conversations that grew from a, a list of consultants that that we use on our programming all the time, probably um, maybe a dozen people, and then through referrals to other people working in the industry, you know, colleagues, friends family, whatever, uh, that list grew to, I don't know, 40 or 50 people. And we had a number of conversations. Some were written, some were verbal, some were just giant Zoom meetings. And the kinds of things that we talked about were really just the community portraying or relating their ideas of what the problems with the screen industry are. And they were pretty specific. Like, I'll, I'll give one example, like in a, in a writer's room, the traditional writer's room is not accessible, meaning that if you are deaf, for example, there are no ASL translators available uh, or that are really even considered for these rooms. And if you are using the screenwriting software, most of the you know popular or common ones are not screen reader accessible. So if you're blind, 
you don't really have an opportunity to participate in those rooms either. And some people need to take breaks. And some people, sometimes, it, for example, in comedy, the, the room is moving very quickly. And there, there are some people who are very funny and have brilliant minds, but may not be able to keep up with the pace of the room. So there are so many, uh, and, and all that to say, you know, when you're going to the room in person, many of these rooms are not accessible physically. Like, you know, maybe can't get a wheelchair up the stairs in the old building that the room happens to be located in. With you, when you just take that one example of the writer's room, right out of the gate, you are limiting the scope of talent in Canada because that room is not accessible to so many talented writers that are that are out there in this country. That's just one example. And I think all throughout we had you know, we had a director talking about her challenges. We had a, we have showrunners, we have uh, actors and performers of various different kinds, and, and they all spoke about the challenges. and And there were so many. I mean, there's really too many to name in this podcast, but uh, ultimately, those were the conversations that we had. You've mentioned to me that there isn't really good data on how much ground the industry needs to make up in this area. Yeah, it's true. You know, there there is pretty good data from StatCan on people with disabilities in the Canadian statistics in general and employment statistics, but there really isn't anything in the in the film and television industry. There have been studies done. Uh, WGC put out a report. I think as of 2019 there was uh you know, only 1% of new diverse members. The numbers were very low, uh, people with disabilities working in television. There have been a, a couple of reports in the, in the United States that did reference uh, Canada. There was one that cited that a representation of real people with disabilities in children's entertainment, I think uh, it, there was 0% in Canada and there was uh, less than 1% in the United States. So there really isn't a lot of data, but the, the problem is that even if there is the data, that people with disabilities generally, and I, I don't want to say everyone, but there there is a, a common feeling that people don't want to disclose their disability because by disclosing that, it could potentially hinder their employment. Because, you know, there is this myth among the industry that if you have a disability, you are potentially a burden on production or more expensive, or there's got to be more training or more accommodation. When you look at the facts and when you actually go through the process and weigh the benefits versus the accommodations, it really isn't more expensive. And you find that the benefits significantly outweigh the challenges. So I, I think that even where there are numbers, they are significantly skewed because a, a lot of people simply just don't want to be disclosing. And, you know, in addition to that, when you ask somebody if they have a disability, you have to keep in mind that you're asking them to disclose their private health information. So I think those are the challenges with um, getting the actual data. So there, there is very small amount, uh, but that's one of the things that we are launching the DSO with is a, is a a very comprehensive uh, study and outreach to figure out who's out there 
and what are they working on and uh, what are the what are the challenges right that best practices guide is actually going to be the foundation of of the whole office isn't that right yeah absolutely um, and the, the the reason that we're starting the office before that document is ready because you know it's going to take maybe two to three years to, to come up with all the data I mean we, we really do have to reach into every corner of the country and and find people. I mean, people with disabilities don't have an organization or a, repre- a, a general representative. So we've got to go and do the work. So yes, that's true. But we're we're opening earlier because it it really can't wait. We we already have spoken to a number of people in the industry that have presented what the barriers and challenges are, and they're real. And people can't really wait two to three years to to participate and and get it off the ground. So so we are going to start with some things that we that we know about, and uh, certainly that research and best practices document will will be the the foundation of the organization, as you said. I understand one of the initial initiatives is going to be a writers' room program through Telefilm this summer. Can you talk about the rollout? Of, of the DSO and what that's going to look like going forward. Right. So the Writer's Room project uh, has yet to be announced, so I can't get into too much detail, but it, it was a program that uh, is a, in partnership between AMI and CMF and Real Abilities Film Festival Toronto. And there will be some more information coming this summer about that, that program launching, uh, the English version of that program launching. There is a French version that is sponsored by Telefilm that is in partnership with uh, AMI and Telefilm and uh, L'Académie in Montreal. And so those programs will, will be coming out this summer. Uh, we are very excited about them and hope that they will be longer running programs. They are intended to discover how writers' rooms can be accessible for people with disabilities and uh, watch for more details coming this summer. Outside of some of AMI's programming, are there series or films that you think are already doing a good job of disability inclusion on screen? You can look at disability representation on screen, but I I think really where we're focusing is more about participation in the industry. You know, anyone can pick up a camera and film someone with a disability or or film a character with a disability. In, In some cases, that character would be played by an actor with a disability or not. And so there, it, it's really a narrow way of measuring how disability is portrayed on screen. I think where, where we really focus is on how people with disabilities are engaged in the media from the ground up. So I don't have as much knowledge uh, in that. Uh, you know, at AMI, I can say that we, you know, when you look at some of the more recent programs that we're working on, like Fashion Disc, for example, or Breaking Character, which are two new programs that are debuting this year. These programs were created by uh, people with disabilities, and you know, in in one, in Breaking Character's case, uh, the the series creator and is also the showrunner, so she's the you know producing the series, and it, you really do get the viewpoint that is authentically from the person with the lived experience, and I think those are the kinds of things that will ultimately create the best representation. So is there a lot of that happening in Canada right now? I I know that there are things in development right now. We just haven't seen them as much on screen outside of AMI, but I I am definitely looking forward uh, to seeing more of that because, you know, in in a content world where every commissioner is 
is looking for that excellent, amazing, adventurous or whatever, the new world, that, that untapped voice that hasn't been there before, the opportunities are huge to explore uh, the viewpoints of people with disabilities and neurological conditions. And there's just a whole world of stories that we haven't heard yet that will be very exciting when they come to the screen. Do you have a thought you'd like to close on, Andrew? I'm just really excited about what the future holds for representation of people with disabilities in the Canadian media. We've studied what other countries are doing, and some are a little more advanced in their conversation around disability visibility in the media, uh, but I really like the way we're going about doing it. We are creating an office that really has the full representation of everybody as opposed to fragmenting into several different groups. And I think that that's a, a really great approach. So it is very exciting to, to see that happen. I think what also excites me is this idea that when we go forward with our programs, our objective really is not so much to open the office, but to close the office. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, a, an organization like this is really only coming into fruition because of a need that the industry should not need. If the industry really was fully accessible to everybody, then we wouldn't need a screen office. So I think going forward, that'll be one of our objectives is not just you know, how can we make a difference, but how can we make a lasting difference such that the industry doesn't need us anymore? Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.